Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 39. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we'll talk to Katie Kirikoshan about the first open access archaeology textbook. Let's dig a little deeper. This is just a quick editorial note. We ended up moving this episode to before the essays, so all the talk of happening after the essays is completely wrong. All right, welcome back to the Archaeology Show. April, how's it going? Not too bad. We've had a busy day. I know we have. I know we have. This is, uh, you know, people are listening to this two weeks apart, but we've recorded two interviews in one day, which is a little a little strange for us. Also, it's weird. We're speaking kind of in the past because it's pre-SAAs, which is kind of a big deal for most archaeologists, and you're listening to this post-SAAs, so keep that in mind. <laughs> we haven't had whatever happened, whatever craziness that happened at the SAAs hasn't actually happened to us yet, so... That's great. Um, but anyway, today we have an interview um, with Katie Kirikosian, and I, I actually don't know her. And I met somebody here in Reno that said, I need to put you in touch with this person because we're doing this crazy thing. And the crazy thing is an open textbook called Ground From the Ground Up. An Introduction to North American Archaeology. But let me first introduce Katie. She's an adjunct lecturer at UMass Amherst, where she received her PhD in 2014. Her main research interests are North American archaeology in southern New England and the history of American archaeology. And she is the lead editor on the textbook that we mentioned. So welcome to the show, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. So Let's just get right into this. What the heck is an open textbook? Aren't they supposed to cost like thousands of dollars and be valid for like six minutes and then we buy another one the next year? <laughs> What's going on with this? <laughs> yeah, well, that, that has been the model for a really long time. Um, but open textbooks are really um, taking off and have been for, you know, I've only been part of kind of the open textbook world for, you know, a few years now. But, uh, you know, they are free and that's the whole point that they should not cost a thing for students and folks should just come together that are experts on a topic, write a given textbook and then make it free and accessible for folks all over the world for students or just the average person who might want to read it on a given subject. Uh, they mm -hmm. can just go in and kind of download that textbook. So open means free. Okay. Well, now, as scientists, yeah, as scientists, we know that anything free, we're all we're always skeptical of because we're charged for everything that we do. There's paywalls everywhere. There's you know things you you have to pay for journal access. I mean, all this stuff. So, how how is this being put together so it's a trustworthy source of information? How are, how did you choose the contributors and how do you keep it current? Wow, those are all great questions. Um, <laughs> it. Uh, we're using, uh, well, let me start by saying that, you know, I'm working with UMass Amherst where I'm adjunct faculty and they have mm -hmm. a really robust program that kind of supports um, 
interested folk, you know, interested researchers from putting this together. So they do some of that kind of background support. Um, But I really had to create this. And that's why we call it from the ground up. I had to create this from the ground up. There was no structure. So imagine starting your own journal, for example, um, Mm -hmm. with really very little support. Um, There's no way for reviews to happen. And that's something that's really important to us. So I've really taken the time to work with um, some other interested contributors to make a structure for this textbook. So it can be reviewed. And we do get kind of small teams of anywhere from four to eight archaeologists coming together for a given chapter. Um, But we do want to have a review process. And we have one planned this summer um, where we're going to be sending it out to experts on any given topic that didn't write any of it, but are Mm -hmm. able to kind of do the review and give open and honest feedback, just like a typical review process, um, Mm -hmm. like a double blind review. So we have that kind of planned. But this is, um, there are various programs out there that, that will do this. And, you know, we're working with, you know, UMass system to make that happen. So it will really just be a, a simple PDF that students can download when faculty adopt a textbook. So where will they be able to find this textbook? There is something called the Open Textbook Network, which I'm a part of as well. So OTN, they actually are a repository, I believe, for open textbooks. So you can go there and it's kind of a a searchable system where you can see all the open textbooks that are out there. There are very few in anthropology. There are a few. And there's at least one other archaeology textbook that I know of um, coming on down the line. But the Open Textbook Network is a great uh, resource. And that's the problem that they're trying to solve in part is where do you find these open textbooks? So they kind of are, or they link out to all of these textbooks. That's great. You know, you, you mentioned there was nothing like this. So you just decided to, you know, let's do this thing. Um, but as with a lot of stuff that somebody just starts up and, and really gets going, it's the, it's the passion of kind of one person that keeps everybody driving and, and moving on when this book is finished. And let's say possibly you move on from this. How does this get, maintained? How does this, um, you know, who, who monitors the situation when this is just out in the wild and it's available? Some bridges I haven't crossed yet. <laughs> and that, that might be, that might be one of them. I'll just be honest. Um, For sure. but, uh, the cool thing about, um, creative commons licenses is that, um, folks can decide to take whatever book we create and add to it and become a co-author, mm-hmm. you know, say that there's one chapter that might be missing a section in someone's mind, like, oh, you know, it's been 10 years and these few sites have been discovered and all this information is now out there. They can take it and depending on our Creative Commons license, they can decide to add to it and then legally call themselves a co-author. Um, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know all the the technical terms mm-hmm. there, but that is one way that this can keep living on. Um, so we can have a, you know, first edition, second edition, third edition, just like any other textbook would. And the yeah. cool thing about some of the software that we're using is we can open it up for comments. So one thing we're hoping to do when this is all said and done uh, next year is have kind of a dry run and maybe a few classes adopting this, a few faculty adopting this with the understanding that this is kind of the first show of this book. And then we can have an open comment period where students can actually go in live to the text and uh, give their feedback on it. 
So if, you know, something as simple as we missed a typo all the way up to, you know, wow, this was really difficult for me to understand or, oh, I was doing research on my own and I found, you know, this great interview on YouTube or something like that. So students could actually kind of be collaborative in the process as well. Mm -hmm. And there's some, there's some cool software that allows that to happen. So we're looking forward to um, really having this an an open and creative process, um, even through the first edition. After that initial commentary period, would faculty and student users of the book still be able to comment and provide feedback? Um, And with this sort of ability to continue editing the book with, you know, with new people kind of contributing, how do you maintain some of the quality control? Because it sounds like you're being very careful currently to make sure that the product is a really high quality textbook. We have the ability in the software to kind of turn the commenting period on and off. Um, So we probably would have a very um, open initial period. And then we might revert to something as simple as, you know, Google Forms or just keep our email address current in terms of, you know, do you have feedback on the book? Um, Do you have any comments you'd like to offer? Because that would take a lot of person hours, in my opinion. And let me say, let me say as well, that's one reason that open textbooks are free is that very few people are getting paid for any of this. Um, I'm not going to get royalties from this book. None of the authors are going to get royalties. Uh, I have no contract with anyone uh, for this book. So it's really all volunteer time, which is another reason why, you know, there's, there's uh, no cost for students. So it's, it's a, it's a labor of love for the dozens of us that are currently involved in it. But we would hope that it remains collaborative um, for its life and however long its life continues to be, however many editions it uh, happens to go through, that, you know, there would be that kind of disclaimer in the book that, you know, we are welcoming feedback from folks and, and what that actual process would be. I'm not sure, um, but I'm not, I don't have all the answers And that's why I wanted to do this as a collaborative project. If I myself were to decide that I wanted to write this, and it crossed my mind for about five minutes, (laughs) like if I were to write this textbook on my own, I have a very, very, very narrow expertise in, you know, the Northeast, even more specific in Southern New England. Uh, And that is, as you know, you know, New England, it's it's a tiny piece of land. So then when you compare that to all of North America, I, I had a, a fork in the road and I realized either I'm going to write this open textbook by myself and it'll probably take me the rest of my career, um, which is about 30 years, give or take, or um, I try to be the kind of captain of this project and steer it as I can and use my administrative experience that I've had in various roles um, throughout my career thus far. And I use that expertise to recruit like heck um, and just be a, a cheerleader for this project and to just get folks that are interested to contribute those kind of small pieces to a larger whole, which is this textbook. And one being like a 30-year investment and the other being maybe like a three-year investment. The (laughs) three-year investment sounded like a lot um, better of a a choice for me. So that's that's what I've been doing and using all my energies uh, really each day to do that. Okay. Well, I did, uh, we do have a lot more questions about the you know, the construction of the book. I think that's the big novelty here is how is this thing being put together? But why don't you tell us before we get too far into this halfway through segment one, uh, what is the book actually going to be? Is it as broad as it sounds? It says an introduction to North American archaeology, which uh, I mean, could be a, a, you know, 
40,000 page textbook if you really wanted it to be. <laughs> if you took all the little regions, like you said, you know, sure. the Northeast and there's the Great Basin and the Southwest and I mean, all over the place. So, you know, what's this, what's this looking like in, internally? Yeah. So each chapter is um, between 10 and 15,000 words because we had mm-hmm. to start somewhere. Um, I worked really closely with a, a a great colleague, new colleague of mine who I met, believe it or not, through this project, um, just by sending out my initial tweet in July. Uh, and I, and I sent out a tweet and it just said, you know, who would, who would welcome a textbook on North American archeology? span Um, after I made that decision, right. Where I said, either I go this way, you know, I do this myself, um, until 2030 or, you know, I partner with (laughs) other folks. So I didn't know where to start. And I, and I sent out a tweet. And uh, Steph Hamhofer, who is Canadian, was one of the first people to respond. And she and I spent most of the summer just talking back and forth. We've never met. We're going to meet at the SAAs in, in uh, next week. Uh, we've never met, but we spent hours and hours and hours on the phone talking about the structure for this and how it was going to work and what we wanted to see it become. And it was a really um, just a unique experience there. Um, but we agreed that, you know, there would be a certain number of, of words, 10 to 15,000 sounded um, like a good kind of fit, especially when you multiply that by 16 chapters. So, you know, it turns out to be like four or 500 pages, but mm-hmm. it is North American archaeology. And I really stand behind that decision. You know, there's lots of introduction to North American archaeology courses being taught. So we know that there'd be a large audience to adopt such a book. Or even if there's a course on American archaeology, they could adopt this textbook as well, um, because all of the regions connect to the U.S. in some some way. But the one thing that I'm really excited about for this textbook, I, I listened to folks' feedback when they said, you know, this is, I did interviews. What do you like about your current book? What don't you like? Um, you know, and some folks when I started interviewing them and, and talking with them about what they liked and disliked, you know, some were like, well, it's, it's always the same sites. Like we know a lot <laughs> about certain sites, but there's been a lot of new work that's happened. Um, really cutting edge stuff, really recent things that might even dispute earlier, you know, understandings of the past that we're not mm-hmm. hearing about. So we've taken that to heart, but also um, I was interested that a lot of people that I was getting, um, feedback from a lot of people that reached out to me were Canadian. And maybe being an American in my little bubble, I just, you know, assumed that, I I don't know what I assumed, but I was really struck by that, that person after person was from Canada. So we're about a 50-50 split. And the one thing that I'm excited about with this project is that it really truly is North American archaeology. And it's not what the Canadian archaeologists have explained to me, a few have said, well, the books we have available to us are really American archaeology. Maybe they have a few sites that focus on Canadian sites or Mexican sites for that matter, but it really is American archaeology. So um, I'm excited to, to make sure, and we've been pushing to make sure that there really is an accurate spread because the boundaries that we now live within are absolutely not the boundaries that were lived within <laughs> at any time period in the past. Um, so right. we're excited to make sure that, you know, we're breaking down some of these false notions of, you know, boundary formations and, you know, how that impacts archaeology. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you have a great geographical spread. Do you have a similar temporal spread kind of covering that archaeological span for the for North America? 
Yeah, the only uh, chapter that we have that focuses on a particular time period is kind of a, a, a specific chapter that focuses on the peopling of Americas or the Paleo-Indian period. So we have that separated. Um, but then from there, we move into all kinds of regional chapters. And as I've been talking with the authors of those regional chapters, although we know that regions are flawed, but we you know, we can't have 500 chapters, you know, on each, you know, nation or something like that. Um, but we know that that's flawed. But one thing that I've talked about with authors is, you know, can we make sure that um, we also bring in the Paleo-Indian period or some of those early periods within each regional chapter to not make just the heavy lifting for the Paleo-Indian uh writers to be, you know, oh my gosh, we have to make sure that we find sites in all these regions. We want to make that continuity there. But also um, in all of the regional chapters, we also are making sure that um, it brings in some of the contact period, right? Or some of the um, settler sites that we see from non-Indigenous people. So, you know, European contact, um, because that's another false dichotomy that we come across time after time is, you know, there's, there's pre-contact, some people refer to it as prehistoric, but I don't prefer that term. So there's that period, and then there's historic. Mm -hmm. We do have a historic archaeology chapter, but um, we're also making sure that each chapter and each regional chapter in and of itself um, kind of bridges that gap to show that, first of all, when contact happened could be hundreds of years apart uh, for a given region. So we wanted to make sure that each region was able to communicate that. When was contact? What did that look like? Uh, what was the experience for indigenous people? And what is the continued experience? So we do also have um, a descendant community voices sec section in each chapter um, where we're inviting uh, descendant communities, uh, namely Native American and First Nations communities to um, share their insights on archeology span and what it means to them through time. Okay. All right. Well, we are at the end of our first segment, so let's take a break. We've got a lot more questions for you, and uh, we'll find more about this open access textbook concept when we come back. Back in a second. Hey, podcast fans. I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. All right. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 40. And we are talking to Katie Kirikosian and about the open access textbook that she is the uh, the editor on and, and, and is getting going here. Let's talk about some of the other people that you have found to write this, which we'll 
you know, lead into some other questions as well. But how have you found contributors to this book? Because it sounds like with the breadth of topics you want to that are going to be in this book, you need a lot of contributors. So how have you found the ones you have and and who's who's left that you need to fill holes for? Let's talk about how you found the people you have first. Oh, you want me to tell you all my secrets? Um, so I'm not, I, I'm not a recruiter um, trained in any way, but I just would stay up at night wondering, like, how am I going to find people um, mm-hmm. to, to fill all these needs? You know, if we want to get four to eight people for 16 chapters, that's a lot of people. Um, yeah. So I hit a lot of usual suspects for my own colleagues, you know, reaching out to them. But if you can imagine, all my colleagues are in mainly one region. Uh, so that only helped me with maybe one chapter. But I took to Twitter was my first strategy, um, just tweeting. And believe mm-hmm. it or not, um, maybe this is an important part of the conversation. I'm not sure, but I'm a Taurus is my sign. So I'm very bullheaded. And when I took to Twitter, everyone who liked me, I then searched them and I sent them an email and I said, you know, you liked my tweet. <laughs> Do you want to join this project? Um, and I think some people thought I was, you know, uh, delusional, but some people took me up on the idea. So it just started from there. You know, when uh, Steph joined the project, she works in the Northwest Coast. So we brainstormed people. I've been um, slogging my way through past um, programs for the SAAs, searching every um you know, keyword I could think of, the Plains, mm. the Southeast, you know, historical, Great Basin, all those things. And I found that as soon as I could find maybe one person, then I could tap into their network. Or even if someone declined, because they had a really big, uh, you know, full slate ahead of them for the next year or two, they were able to then kind of tap me into a few people that they would suggest. Um, mm-hmm. There's lots of grad students as well. So oftentimes when I connected with faculty, that were unable to contribute, they would suggest some of their, you know, senior grad students, or, you know, really just was a a snowball from there. And then it's just traveled also by by word of mouth. And I've just been asking everyone involved to just be an ambassador for the project, and keep, keep this project in mind. And if something crosses their, you know, line of sight, or someone crosses their line of sight that they see as a as a good contributor to, uh, you know, send them my way or to send them to Twitter, or to email, you know, our, our Gmail account and to just, ultimately they make their way to me. I'm kind of the mm-hmm. gatekeeper and I have this like master list of everyone. Um, and it's been, it's been filling up nicely. And what, what holes do you still have to fill? Do you have any chapters that don't have any writers or are you looking for holes to fill in the teams for different chapters? I would say that I don't think any chapter would turn away an interested author, (laughs) um, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. But there are some that are, you know, on really solid footing. But I can just, you know, say the chapters, you know, and if people are, you know, interested or think of folks that might be interested, um, you know, send them my way. We, of course, have a really broad introductory chapter, which is just theory, method and practice and in North American archaeology. So to give students a solid footing of like, what is archaeology today? And then we have a a history of archaeology. That's actually one of my areas of interest and expertise is the history of um, archaeological practice or the science of archaeology. So we have a chapter there that will talk through some of the time periods and, you know, different theories um, of the time and, you know, some of the the cast of characters through time of archaeology. Then we do have one on Paleo-Indians or the first inhabitants. And then there's just the typical regions, you know, Arctic, Subarctic, Northwest Coast, California, Southwest, Great Basin, Plateau, Plains, Southeast, uh, the Greater Northeast, and 
historical archaeology. We have an interesting chapter, which um, I don't think is really in need of, of any more authors, but I wanted to mention it. It's a chapter on archaeology, heritage law, and international agreements. And I'm really excited about that chapter because it's the first of its kind, as far as I know, um, that actually will get into um, you know, heritage laws in Canada, the US and Mexico, and we have authors for all three countries. So most of the other um, North American archaeology textbooks that I know of, again, that's what I was hearing was that, well, that chapter really talks about American archaeology. It talks about Antiquities Act, it talks about NAGPRA. But if I'm in Canada, and I've adopted this textbook, I'm not going to assign that chapter for my students, because it really is not what I want to talk to them about when it comes to heritage law. So that's mm -hmm. a really exciting chapter um, that I'm looking forward to coming together. And it is coming together quite nicely. And then the last chapter is entitled, you know, ensuring the past future is ensuring our future. Um, so really broad about, you know, why is archaeology important? Um, not only to archaeologists, of course, um, but descendant communities, as well as, you know, a variety of stakeholder communities. So mm -hmm. I would say any of those chapters would be welcoming with open arms of another interested author, especially if they could potentially fill a hole. Um, but we're really letting this grow organically. So we're letting potential authors come to us with their expertise, letting us know what they're interested in. We also have outlines and tables of contents created for almost all of these chapters. Um, I'd say four out of five of the chapters have, have actual tables of contents created by each group. Um, and mm -hmm. some of them do just have, you know, TBD by the author for that particular section because no one's been able to step forward um, to write that section. So that's really one of my um, big goals at the SAAs. So I'm excited for that next week is, you know, I have that master list and I'm ready to just fill up those few, you know, holes that we have for each chapter to get really solid teams because a lot of, well, every chapter is actively writing as well. But some sections mm -hmm. might, are, you know, might come a little bit later because we just haven't yet found someone uh, to fill that, to fill that need. And then one area that I'm also um, actively recruiting, and it really connects to the spirit of this text, is that we do want to have descendant community voices um, connected to each chapter. So um, if okay. one thinks of, you know, members of descendant communities that would have something to say, individuals or communities at large that would want to say something about North American archaeology, um, we also have sections in each chapter to dedicate it and set aside to make sure that we open that space. That's uh, It's interesting you say that because one of the most, uh, I think actually the March episode of the Heritage Voices podcast, which is on this network, mm -hmm. hosted by um, Jessica Aquinto and Lyle Belenqua. Yes. Lyle, uh, yeah, he ran a panel. It was actually on uh, on the whole Bears Ears thing and it was a live panel and they recorded it. But a quote that somebody said in there, which I thought was really, really impactful, especially as a white male archaeologist such as myself, is um, the time for the Indian expert is over. It's time for the expert Indian. <laughs> and I was like, that's perfect. Um, so definitely, you know, definitely including those voices in there. And, and you know, you should check out um, check out the Heritage Voices podcast and, and yes. find Lyle and, and Jessica on Twitter. They're both very active on Twitter. And, and uh, you know, they would they would at least possibly be able to put you in touch with some people that would be very interested in something like this. Um so, yes. you know, going, yeah, going back to your writers. So, you know, we'll, we'll definitely have your contact info in this. So, so if anybody's interested in finding out more about this or, um, 
you know, contributing a chapter or helping to contribute to a section, then that would be great. But I guess a big question I have is, you know, with some of the feedback you got from interviewing people saying, you know, one of the things you actually mentioned was uh, it's always all the same sites, blah, blah, blah. You know, people are always talking about this. Let's get some fresh ideas in here. My my question would be is, and it's a logical question to ask, and I'm sure people are thinking it, is if you're if you're using 16 chapters to talk about all of North America, Mexico, Mexico, mm-hmm. Mexico, that's a new country, I guess, um, yeah. <laughs> Mexico, America, United States, and Canada, um, how how difficult is it going to be to not gloss over those subjects? You know what I mean? And the reason mm-hmm. the big big famous sites are usually talked about is because people are glossing over a really broad topic. And those are sometimes the best examples we have of certain things. So during the, how, how robust is the peer review process and how brutal is the peer review process for these chapters? Like, you know, is somebody going to say, Oh, you're talking about, you know, uh, Chaco Canyon again. We've heard about Chaco Canyon 700 times in every single textbook. You know, maybe that is the best example for what needs to be talked about. But how are you guys dealing with that? And how brutal are you being about it? I mean, we have planted the seed is the main thing with each chapter of like, what sites do you know of that, you know, maybe haven't gotten the most attention? A lot of folks here, you know, have recently finished PhDs or actively working on their, their dissertations. And they obviously are experts on maybe sites again that haven't really been they haven't really seen the light of day but they can offer similar examples or maybe even uh, unique cases that have never been heard of so uh, that's what we you know we've found that we've been tapping into different expertise with folks but let me say too that you know it is a lot of sites that need to be covered in a given chapter um, but we do have something separate in the textbook and we do have something called case studies. So this, this mm. um, textbook is going to be set up with kind of, again, that um, background chapter, which is going to do a really, in a broad stroke, it's going to explain a particular region with all the difficulties of explaining a broad region within, you know, just 30 pages, for example. But it's going to do that work. And then um, within there, they're going to cover a series of sites that show examples, you know, that are important for students to understand through time. But those examples might be kind of pull out boxes, maybe just, you know, a few hundred words, a few paragraphs at most on a particular site. Like what, what does this site in particular tell me? But then, so that would be kind of very broad. And we don't want to overwhelm students with sites because that's not what we want them to walk away with. We don't want them to walk away knowing a lot about, you know, 200 different sites throughout the U.S. um, and and just repeating that information back to us. Um, That's not going to be the lasting lessons that they'll learn. But we do have these case studies that we're interested in um, exploring. And there we're having folks write almost like a mini case study for each chapter. So some you know, sometimes a sole author or two or three authors are coming together. And again, writing a very short, almost site report that goes into great depth about a site that can be then illustrative of a particular region. So Mm -hmm. sure, Chaco Canyon could be one of those. Cahokia could be one of those. Uh, Some of the kind of go-to sites could definitely be those sites. But the case studies are allowing folks to go into more depth. And we're really hoping that those case studies as well are, are also sites that I think students would care about because the messages that they have to offer students are, you know, 
compelling messages. You know, how do communities deal with violence? Um, what, how do communities deal with climate change or resource depletion or some of the things that we're dealing with in the 21st century? So we're having those case studies framed in that way. That sounds really great. One of the things that I think sounds wonderful is that heritage management chapter where you're working really hard to, to link these three countries, because I think about that a lot, working in a department where we are in North America or in uh, America, but we have people who are working in Canada, working in Mexico. We're not necessarily training students to understand the diversity of these laws and what they mean and why they exist for these different countries and sort of that history behind it. So it sounds like you're linking that aspect really well. Um, But one of my thoughts and questions and feedback that I've heard working more with younger students, but uh, is the idea that our education system and the way our textbooks are often set up, it has kind of regional focuses frequently, and it's hard to link and understand that different things are happening at the same time or the same Mm. thing is happening at different times. Mm. Um, And sort of breaking that regional barrier a little bit to say, you talked about a little bit with contact, you know, contact happens here during this time period, but then, you know, once you move to the West, it happens earlier or it happens later when you move to the North. So, you know, are there areas where you're trying to break down a little bit of that too, to kind of help students understand that these are not independent processes or they're independent, but they're sort of connected through different temporal frames? That was one strategy that was suggested to us. You know, some folks, when we first introduced this idea into the world, you know, some folks said, hey, I'm super interested in this, but I'm not going to adopt the textbook if you focus on regions. That's not how I teach this class. I focus on themes. Um, But to do that in a collaborative nature is very difficult. (laughs) So um, we have decided, and it was a, you know, strategic decision to maintain this discussion of the past in North America regionally, but something we're definitely going to have to unpack for students, you know, early on in, you know, chapter one for sure is, you know, why did we focus on regions? Because we know those are flawed. We're going to have to talk about Krober and, you know, his ideas and how, you know, those have a legacy, right? And that's what I'm interested in the history of archaeology, how these things have a legacy. And we can't, it's very difficult, I would say, to break away from them. But talking about themes was definitely suggested. Um, and one way that I think we can do that is through something else that we're hoping to accomplish in this textbook. I feel like I keep saying like, no, but there's more. Um, <laughs> but there, it's true. So another thing I'm really excited, I'm excited just overall for this. I hope it shines through. But another thing, you know, teaching is very important to me. Obviously, that's why I approached this um, concept or this, you know, I took on this project. But um, one thing that we're working on are also teaching resources for this textbook. So we have, in addition to having chapter teams, we have a team that, you know, of great educators, um, archaeologists that, um, you know, have a really solid background in pedagogy, and they're focusing on teaching resources for this book. So if nothing else, there's going to be a series of, you know, kind of lesson plans and different ideas and, you know, great um, videos that folks can show or discussion type questions and articles and such. Um, But that could certainly be something that makes its way into, you know, a a lesson 
for, you know, the, these teaching resources is, you know, what's happening at the same time, if you were to just take a, a line on a timeline and just draw it across these regions, you know, what's going on um, and how is that the same and how is that different? Or how can we point to similar things happening at different times? So like the introduction of pottery, you know, if you look at different regions, like why did that happen um, in all of these regions or many of these regions? But, you know, at different times, is there some way that we could explain that? So I could see that being a useful exercise and something that's tackled in the teaching resources is to get students to think much more big picture about connecting these regions. So, you know, the, the height of, you know, Cahokia is at the same time as, you know, some completely different thing happening in another region because of, you know, a climate variation that, you know, has totally destroyed some resource that they're depending on, right? So there's a fluorescence here, but there's a decline somewhere else. Um, I could see that being a, a really useful exercise for students to think about. And then to take that and to apply it to the world around them is what we want them ultimately to do. Um, to, you know, turn around then and look and say like, oh, I do understand now how things are connected in my own world. And, you know, pulling a string here makes something happen over there. Um, although I know it's on a different scale with globalization, but it still would have folks see the interconnected nature of our world through time. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, one of, and even what you're doing while well, keeping this sort of regional focus, but working to explain it, you know, when you are an anthropologist, archaeologist, there is so much sort of historical baggage about how the field has developed. And even just making students aware of that, I think, allows them to see beyond those divides because they're conscious of them. Like, oh, we create regions in order to break down, categorize, and study this data, but these aren't really, you know, the people we are studying did not understand or did not know that these were regional divides um, necessarily. So, Sure. I mean, and what they're, they were calling their tools is not what we call their tools. And, right. you know, how they classified their sites, I mean, I'm sure they probably didn't even classify their sites. They were just like, you know, they they didn't like walk around with like site types in their mind, which was, I can't help it. It was the focus of my dissertation. You no, know, no, the problems inherent nice. with all of these terms nice. that we use. Yeah, so um, not but, like, you know, oh, I'm going to my field house versus my small Pueblo yeah. settlement. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is a Kiva. You know, I mean, I don't really think it, just like how we, you know, maneuver and manipulate our world. They had their own systems that we can only hope to tap into and to better understand. Um, but that's one thing that I think is important for us to have open and honest conversations with students. I mean, many of the students that are going to take this course for which this textbook is, is um, going to be adopted, we hope, are probably not going to become archaeologists, but some of them will. Because mm -hmm. we know that, you know, everyone that becomes an archaeologist takes an intro class. Um, but we do want to have open and honest conversations with them about what archaeology is and what it isn't. Um, maybe sometimes we have a little bit too much bravado and too much confidence about what we know about a particular um, place or a particular time period because we feel like we have to be the expert. But I think one way of really letting our expertise shine through is to be honest about what we don't know or how we question everything and to allow mm -hmm. students to do that as well versus like, this is the truth, which I think is very difficult to say 
with certainty on so many topics in archaeology, but to allow students to, you know, fall in love with what it is that we do um, by questioning, which is what I think that, you know, archaeology is all about. And most of these students are going to go into different pursuits, um, probably making more money than archaeologists, I'm hoping. And they'll be the <laughs> ones that, um, you know, will be able to support us and to, you know, be informed citizens when things like, you know, controversial cases like Bear Ears comes up, you know, they will be the ones that want to um, say something or will be the ones that, you know, realize the dangers in certain legislation or, you know, the, the, they'll be the ones that won't be thinking it's a waste of taxpayers' dollars to, you know, explore areas when highways are being put in and they won't think that, you know, it's just pork, right? They'll, they'll see the value in that. So it's also to help um, connect and make an informed citizenry. Okay. Well, we are right up against our final break here, but I just got to say, I can't help but think of people walking around the Great Basin 3,000 years ago and going, all right, kids, put down your groundstone and projectile points. We're going to set up a seasonal habitation site. (laughs) (laughs) That's like all I can think about. Okay. So we're going to take our final break and we will be back in just a second to wrap up this discussion. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our online store and access to show hosts on a members only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. Well, welcome back to our third and final segment. We're talking with Katie Kirikoshin about open source textbooks. So I have two kind of interrelated questions. The first is just, you know, will you tell us a little bit more about the collaborative process, how, you know, you have people obviously spread across, you know, huge disciplinary ranges and uh, geographical ranges and corralling everybody, getting, helping them find platforms to work together um, to produce this textbook. And then also, you know, as an academic, um, we, you know, there's a lot of pressure for us as academics to kind of be producing and publishing and creating peer-reviewed content. So a little bit about how this fits into that sort of academic mindset and framework, partly to encourage other academics to start considering these sort of non-traditional publication formats as something legitimate. Yeah, so how we've been coming together, um, you know, we've been using all the tools available to us, you know, Skype, Hangout. Um, We've really been relying heavily on Google um, in every way, shape and form. So, you know, where we have Google Docs going all over the place um, that are all my my task is to mastermind it all and to make sure it all links to a main table of contents so we don't lose any of you know you can lose things in Google mm-hmm. like <laughs> you're working on it but you just forget where it was so yeah we've been I've been very strict about 
Um, I've had it happen, you know, that these things, this is the document you need to work in. If you want to work in another document, that's fine, but it needs to ultimately live here. It also allows me to snoop a little bit. I hate, I hope people aren't, you know, listening to that that are writing, but you know, it's kind of, it's kind of nice to, you know, um, peek in on different things. So that's, that's one, you know, thing that we've, we've done is linking tables of contents for each chapter and then for the whole text itself. So it's in some kind of a, a, a structure and these things aren't all happening in isolation. Um, but that is one thing that we've run across, you know, we've, we've had um, difficulty with is getting academia to recognize open text work as, um, you know, legitimate forms of publication, um, because not all textbooks have this kind of review process. Um, and, and there's not that real structure. But I can say that, you know, some organizations that I'm working with, like the Open Textbook Network is is working towards, you know, creating some of these things. And there are other groups out there, Rebus community that's, you know, thinking through some of this, how do we show to academia that this is a rigorous process. Um, and, you know, Open Textbook Network does reviews of textbooks. They're not blind reviews, but they are reviews where, you know, academics go and they can read an open text. I've written a few reviews, you know, saying like, wow, this, this is actually a book that I would adopt. It's not, you know, this thing just put together in, you know, a couple weeks time. This is a really amazing textbook. There's some really, really great ones out there that could rival any of the non-open textbooks, if you will. Um, so that is, you know, one thing that's difficult. We have had authors decline, unfortunately, because they don't feel that they're in a particular university system that would welcome this work of theirs. And they're, you know, going up for tenure or something like that, and they just cannot commit the time. They will cheer us from the sidelines, but they don't feel as though they can, you know, kind of commit to the project. So that's been difficult because I know that their work would be so invaluable and their contribution would be so invaluable. But I can only hope when our first edition is finished that maybe there'll be open spaces for people to, you know, make those contributions or, you know, help support um, the project in other ways. Um, but that has been, you know, and is a real challenge. Another thing that we started doing is we're having monthly meetings now um, where we're meeting and, you know, the whole group can get together. We meet the second Friday of every month. We've where uh, this Friday we're going to be meeting, um, even though that's off the second Friday schedule, but the second Friday will be at SAAs. So we wanted to sneak one in before and we're going to have a, a get together at the SAAs proper. But that's been really helpful because one challenge for this project has been creating senses of community within not only the project at large, but also the different chapter teams. Um, like a lot of chapter teams have never met each other or they might know one other person, but I myself also only know, have actually physically met and shook the hands of like three of the like 60 people on this project. So I'm going to have a lot of handshaking at the SAAs. Um, but it, it's, that's been kind of wild, right? So if you don't have this sense of communal obligation to someone because you've never met them before, you know, you're just kind of emailing back and forth and, you know, you said you're going to write this section, um, you might not. Um, feel as strong a sense of obligation. So we found that, you know, with a, a collegial sense of community of like, hey, this is that person, and they're working on their section. So, you know, that gives me extra motivation for, you know, the work that I'm doing. And to see everyone else kind of rallying together on this project is important. So we started doing that um, in 
February. So this will be our third meeting and we're going to meet for the next few months up until the summer um, as well. And that's been really helpful. We just do really quick check-ins to see what folks are, as my former advisor, Martin Wobst used to say, like, what are you up to and what are you up against? So share, you know, successes and challenges that you're having. And we, we stick to that. Each chapter gets literally five minutes because for each chapter to get five minutes, that's an hour and a half meeting. Um, so we, you know, just what can we help you with? There's a bunch of us here. Um, you know, what's a success? Cause we don't want to just focus on the negative. Um, you know, Hey, we got a new author. We, you know, have all of our sections signed up for, that's a great success, um, this past month or, you know, what, and then in addition to that, you know, what's a challenge that you're facing that, you know, I just can't find somebody for this. Can anyone think of anyone that they could email, um, and help us out? or, you know, just some network we haven't tapped into. So we kind of all come together on the fire and, and chat about those things. Uh, and we use um, Zoot for that. Well, I know not seeing people that you're collaborating with, that's how we started the APN. April's only the second person I think I met before we started doing a podcast together. And most of the people in the Archaeology Podcast Network, I've never actually met in person. So it's uh, it's kind of crazy the way we can collaborate in this world today. Um, so speaking of that, going forward, when, again, I think you may have mentioned this, but just let me be sure to ask the question here. When is the book planning planned to be released? Um, once we go through uh, first drafts being due June 8th and then a review process and second drafts being due in the fall, um, we do hope that this mm-hmm. will be ready in 2019 um, okay. for, uh, you know, we we're thinking we might do kind of a soft launch in the summer. There aren't that many summer classes, though, but. I happen to teach like an online summer course version of this. So could mm-hmm. possibly be a guinea pig, um, but we're hoping it'll definitely be ready for fall 2019. Very nice. Okay. And what do you think, you, you mentioned the first edition as well. I, I'm wondering because, you know, you also mentioned, so you've mentioned a first edition, which is what this is going to be. And then also the ability for people to come in and say, well, you know, in, in a year, let, let's include this, or this should be in there. So what is the, update cycle going to be? And and do you think this will evolve into a thing where like chapter five is on edition 14, and chapter <laughs> 11 is on edition 25? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I hadn't. Um, you just put the idea in my mind. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> but I again, I'd be totally open to that. Really, the bottom line for me is if students can learn more about archaeology, um, North American archaeology more specifically, or even, you know, a retiree that stumbles upon this book, whoever, if they can learn about this and it's free, especially for students who we know, you know, are spending a ridiculous amount of money on textbooks, unnecessarily mm-hmm. so, in my opinion, um, it's a win-win. So maybe some chapters will be, um, you know, version version one and some chapters will be version 10. I'm not sure. Um, we were thinking of just kind of then calling the whole book like version two and the whole book version three. Um, but <laughs> yeah, there's there, you know, there is a chapter or two that I'm not quite sure if it's going to get off the ground. Um, so, but what we're going to do is, you know, we said we were going to have these 16 chapters. So that's what we're going to do. Even if the table of contents has, you know, chapter, whatever, here's the region. And then when you turn to that chap, you know, it says there like forthcoming or something. We want to show that we intended for that chapter to exist um, because then we're hoping that we can, um, you know, rally a team and say like, hey, this book has like 14 of the 16 chapters together. And, you know, we can be a part of this if we just kind of get together and do the same process that they did. Um, we're open to that as well. I've, you know, I, I've 
just kind of let let things go in terms of, you know, letting this be organic. I do a certain number of hours per day, emailing, recruiting, checking in, cheerleading, supporting, whatever I can do. Um, and then it really go- comes back to the teams. Each team is led by a team lead. And that was something we mm-hmm. did intentionally. So I am kind of the lead editor. And then there's a steering committee of people that are there to kind of support, you know, strategy. When we get to review process, I'll kind of tap them. And there are a lot of, um, you know, senior archaeologists on the steering committee. They're not actually writing, but they are there to almost like a board of directors or something. They're there to support the, right. the, the concept and tap into their networks and, and experiences as needed. But then each chapter has a team lead. And that person is really just a middle level manager, right, of their chapter. Mm -hmm. So I can just email 16 people versus emailing 75 people. Um, I can just email the team lead for each chapter. I happen to be team lead on one of the chapters. So that cuts down on emails. But uh, but yeah, I can just email those folks and they have a really good sense of on the ground pulse for their chapter. So I've relied on them very heavily saying like, hey, what's going on with your chapter? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, how are folks doing? Any questions coming your way? And I send things down the line to them and they send things back up the line to me. And it's been really helpful in our monthly meetings because then I can just email them and say, you know, can you be at the meeting or someone, you know, can you give a five minute update on where you stand? And they definitely have that again on the ground pulse of where the project is. Is, is this going through any sort of professional um, copy editing or something like that? Or is it uh, the peer review process you think will cover most errors that are spelling and grammar related? Um, no. And that's one of the great ways that uh, the Rebus community might come in. So mm-hmm. they have a great network and they are, you know, very supportive of, you know, they're there for creating open textbooks and being a platform to create open mm-hmm. textbooks. So we're hoping to tap into their network. We're a supported Rebus community project. That's where folks can find out more information on us as well. Much of our information, our author guide is all on Rebus. If you just create a free account, then you can look for it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. It's the only archaeology textbook um, on their list. But uh, they have a variety of folks that volunteer their time for supporting open texts. So it includes, as far as I understand, you know, a great team of folks that can copy edit. They might know nothing about archaeology, but they know about grammar. <laughs> and, you know, they're willing to read a manuscript. Obviously, some of the folks that, you know, their eyes need to pass this these chapters obviously need to have an expertise because, you know, how you spell hohokam is not something that the average copy editor would know. Um, so right. we want to have a variety of eyes kind of look over this. But yeah, I'm ready again to start recruiting and email out Rebus community for copy editing support, um, rely on steering committee for their ideas, um, do some of it myself as a first pass and, you know, just do this as a, as a community project. And I have really, we just got a few minutes left and uh, I've got one sort of fundamental tech question. You mentioned this would be distributed basically as a PDF um, that can be you know, passed around and, and and people can have it that way. What's the decision process behind that? My, my first thing thought was perhaps that's almost a financial decision because if you had an online resource for this, well, that was, now that's servers and hosts and things like that that have to be maintained. Um, and a PDF is something that worst case scenario, you guys get this done and then everybody backs away from the project and no one ever updates it again. Um, the PDF is at least alive and well and out there and, you know, dated to 2019 and current as of that time. 
it was that kind of the decision behind a PDF or is that just a byproduct of the open textbook format that you guys are using? Cause it, it seems to me like something that would be online and accessible because literally everybody's online with all their devices all the time now would be almost a more updatable resource without turning it into Wikipedia. <laughs> sure. No, there's, this is actually going to be something called a press book and that's something okay. that, um, UMass Amherst, where I'm adjunct faculty, and they're able to support, they have a, a relationship with, with Pressbooks. But what it does is essentially turns it into, you know, a, a PDF, but it looks just like a, a you know, an ebook, uh, essentially, mm-hmm. but it will be it will okay. be a Pressbook. And that's what a lot of open textbooks are. Gotcha. Okay, that's cool. That's really nice. So that allows you if you aren't going to always be online, to also have a copy downloaded onto something like Kindle mm-hmm. and access it that way. Yes. And that okay. gives that opportunity that I said of turning on um, the editing feature where mm-hmm. folks from anywhere in the world could, you know, offer live kind of feedback on the, the textbook itself. Um, and there's like a plugin, as far as I understand, that you add to Pressbooks and then you get that live feedback and you can turn it on and turn it off and then, you know, do your kind of editing if you've you know opened it up for a few months to you know any feedback and then you turn it off and do your editing and then kind of re-reveal it as a clean Mm -hmm. then a clean copy um it it can be hyperlinked and that's one thing that we think we're going to be doing a lot of you know we don't want to recreate the wheel so we're also you know actively looking at like all the great stuff that already exists out there and let me tell you we are linking to a lot of your podcasts (laughs) because you know it's (laughs) like if if a student wants to learn more about x or y or z you know to write out another 20 pages doesn't make sense, but, you know, students are very savvy and they very much want to listen to an hour podcast from some expert on something. Um, so there's, there's lots of great podcasts out there and it's overwhelming the number of them, to be honest. So we have a team of, team of folks that are just making sure that all the great stuff out there, you know, we're, we're really not recreating the wheel and, and mining all of that awesome information that is out there, all these databases that students could look at and everything. The, the teaching team is doing a lot of that because we see them as teaching resources or supplemental mm-hmm. resources. But, but yeah, it's a press book ultimately, but students can download it as a PDF. And the nice thing is if a student really did want to print it, and for ADA compliance, some students might need to, uh, if they did want to print it, it wouldn't be free for them, but it would just be the cost of, of printing that PDF. Well, I certainly appreciate the linking back to uh, to our podcast for sure. That's one of the main reasons I set up the APN was uh, probably one of the same reasons you are, you know, decided to go down the open textbook route. I mean, I wanted a resource where people could come. I put the search right on our main page and you can search all of our podcasts in the entire back catalog. Uh, with a lot of different keywords that we put in there. And th- that, that was the whole point was to be an educational resource. And I love it. Um, mm-hmm. And I would love to link to the open textbook when it's finished as well as another another way to learn about archaeology. So, but, uh, you know, we're out of time for now. Um, I just I just got one final thing. So this is this is after the SAAs have already come out. So, you know, we can't ask you what your experience was like there. But, you know, when you walk through the book room or through the, well, it's the exhibit hall at the SAAs mm-hmm. where there's what, some of like 200 exhibitors. It's mm-hmm. huge. Are you going to feel like some kind of rebel leader walking past all those traditional textbook oh. publishers? <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Right before this, I was actually um, designing business cards because um, I'm, I'm going to have just business cards for the textbook because like I said, I want to yeah. recruit and I'm, I'm just 
I am like crawling out of my skin for the SAAs. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know um, how I'll how I'll feel. You know, like uh, right. I'll like wear sunglasses and I don't know, <laughs> zoot on past them. But I mean, I know that I know that um, you know there are some really great folks that have come together and written traditional textbooks because that was the route that they sure. had. I saw this as an option, and a lot of people, you know, have told me like this is a big project. And I've said, I, I know, (laughs) I know it is, but, um, you know, no one, no one's going to do it if somebody doesn't do it. So let's just get it done. Well, everybody knows that's written a book. You don't make really any money writing archeology span textbooks or otherwise. Uh, I mean, the royalties you get are don't even compare to the time and effort you put into them. So if we can get legitimized for, if we could get some legitimate recognition from academic institutions for people to contribute to open textbooks. That's really what they want. That's really the currency they're looking for is to help with their tenure and to help with their, you know, their situation there. And if we can just get that to be a reality and it's going to take something like you putting out this book to, to really demonstrate that that's a, a way forward, then uh, I think the traditional publisher should be, you know, should be thinking long and hard about their future <laughs> as, this, as this becomes a thing. So anyway, that's Absolutely. all the time we have. And I, I hope to see you in the, at the SAAs in Washington, DC next week. I think it'll be great. Um, yes. And uh, yeah, and we'll link to all of your information, which we'll get after the show here. And if you guys are anybody here that's listening to this is interested in contributing to this or contributing to future editions, even hopefully this keeps on going and, and possibly learning about how this is happening and putting together textbooks on other subjects. So let's, let's keep this going. And um, again, thank you, Katie, for coming on. This was great. Thank you. The future of the past is open. I welcome all authors. Thanks for listening to the archaeology podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks, and in the meantime, keep learning keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. 
and all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 